Welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for September 10th, 2021. I'm looking to see whether anybody's joining because it looks like our registrations might have gotten screwed up again. I see a few people joining here. That's a good sign. Uh, this is Bob Ambrosi. I am the host of the show. I also have a blog called Law Sites and a podcast called Law Next. And uh, let's have our panelists introduce each other. Um, Nikki, you want to kick us off? Sure. Say introduce each other. Introduce themselves. You don't have to introduce each other. Just introduce themselves. I'm gonna magically change my virtual background while we're talking. I decided I didn't like it. So uh, my name is Nikki Black. I, I have the ability to magically transport myself from place to place. Other than that, I am the legal technology evangelist at my case, and I write legal tech columns for Above the Law, ABA Journal, Daily Record, and weekly columns for Above the Law or the My Case blog. Um, <laughs> I'm a little confused today. Transporting kind of plays with your mind. So I wouldn't recommend doing that very often for those of you that also have that skill. Where, where are you actually today? Um, I'm home. Okay. I, we were not in your yard, not at your cottage. You're... Well, we were, at the, we were at the cottage all summer while my husband was recovering from his uh, surgery for cancer. Yeah. Um, and now that school started, we're back home and um, I am once again back home. All right, good. And Victor, <laughs> want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal. Uh, I do not have the power to teleport. And if I did, I probably would not care about legal tech uh, so much. I'd probably be doing lots of other things with my powers. But so I, I thank Nikki for, you know, spending the time with us, uh, you know, and, and, and using her powers wisely. Hopefully she doesn't, uh, you know, have to teleport, you know, into, into um, you know, anywhere and get us in trouble so sounds good victoria how about you hey everyone my name is victoria i am a reporter at alm where i write mostly about legal tech news and sadly i, I wasn't a part of last week's discussion about beyonce but i'll see if i can um, transport myself to another area let's see there yeah. you go I'm in London at the Victoria uh, Tube Stop in Central yeah. London. Yeah. No, I'm not so special. I was special before. That's good because for a minute when I saw the tiles, I thought you were in somebody's bathroom there. So that's good. Uh, Zach, how about you? Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm the editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News. You'll also see me on law.com and other places. I also actually have an irrational fear ever since I watched that show Heroes on NBC as a kid and they all got random powers. Um, I've never really wanted to have powers like to travel or anything like that because I feel like the government would kidnap me immediately and try and put it for their own uses. And I'm not good enough to actually keep that quiet. As a kid, just <laughs> putting that out there. That was great. Thanks for that. <laughs> And last but not least, Joe. Wait, uh, um, are, is it last? Did Steve go? I didn't even- Oh, no, miss. Steve didn't go. Okay, yeah, okay. I was like, or, or, I can go now, but I was like, I don't think, I think I still had two to go here. Uh, but yeah, I'm Joe Patrice. You're I'm right. from the editor of Above the Law. Well, see this, I, see, I'm getting good at this because I had to host last week. So I, 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 I'm now yeah, getting those skills. Yeah, um, yeah. like knowing and I have the, here. <laughs> yeah, I have the magical ability to, actually find a PlayStation 5, apparently, which I managed to get at 6 a.m. today because I was randomly awake when uh, my local store told me that they had five units in stock. So 
I did the thing that no one else in the world is able to do. Awesome. Now, last but not least, Steve, I guess I see I'm a little discombobulated <laughs> today. I just came running into the office a minute before we started this thing. So I'm uh, I'm also just getting my bearings, but that's no excuse. <laughs> that, that, that's all right. Maybe I may be last and least for all I know. No. But, <laughs> I'm Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, and I am also chair-elect of the ABA uh, Law Practice Division. I, too, missed the performance of last week, and I'm sorry for that, but uh, I'm back this week. And I only have one question for Nikki, and that is, are, is that really you, Nikki, or is it just an, an avatar? <laughs> it's a holographic projection, so it's even better than an avatar. <laughs> so, and I am sorry to report today the loss of one of our panelists, not, not in the fatal sense, but uh, in the career move sense, Molly McDonough, who has been with us from the start on this. Uh, I, I don't know that she's actually announced her new job yet. So I, I won't spoil her thunder, but she does have a new job and that new job prohibits her from participating in this panel. So she is uh, hanging up her cleats and uh, and Caroline Hill, I don't know where she is this week. I don't think I ever heard from her on, on whether she was gonna be here or not, but hopefully she'll be back next week. Um, she may well have emailed me. I guess people keep emailing me to tell me I haven't read their emails, so, which is, seems to kind of defeat the purpose, but um, I'm sure we all know how that goes. So a uh, uh, few things to get to this week. Uh, and uh, I don't know, where, where should we start? Uh, Victoria, you want to kick us off today talking about robots, machines? Yeah, the AI overlords trying to take over our patent system. Um, Which this Nikki was, welcomes. Definitely. <laughs> it's kind of like a follow-up. I didn't write the follow-up, but just kind of like a follow-up that I um, wrote about just in the development of, I believe it's called Dabus, D-A-B-U-S, um, a patent where they're saying that the inventor of the patent is AI. Now, the owner would be people, but they're just saying that the person that created the patent was AI. And my colleague Scott Graham in California earlier this week wrote about um, how a U.S. Um, federal judge um, said that um, you know the patent couldn't be granted because a patent can't be um, a patent has to be a person. And they were citing like the Constitution when they talk about himself, herself, believes, and how that can't be a computer. And now the judge didn't say that that could never happen, but that's something that. The, um, Congress would have to amend the laws to allow like a non-human to um, be a patent owner. And it's kind of like a follow-up from a couple months ago in South Africa and Australia, this Dobbins, they received um, patent or the ability, I think they received like a patent um, for their invention and they listed AI as the inventor. And just kind of like some people were, were saying like, it's a good chances that they're not going to um, no other, uh, U.S. Uh, patent offices would grant that because it goes against kind of like um, what most laws say and even some, I think, treaty agreements as well. So it's kind of interesting to see from when I spoke a couple months ago to attorneys, they said Dabis likely wouldn't um, receive this um, patent because their type of AI isn't, I guess, like that's complicated that you would have a human programmer putting in or um, developing the algorithm to create that patent. So it's still a human person involved. But, you know, it's kind of everyone saying that at some point we might get to that point and how to deal with that. 
Yeah, I thought that was really, I thought it's an interesting story. And I think it's, you just wonder how that's going to evolve. I mean, there is, I think there was just a story this week I, I saw about, you know, AI getting the point of being able to write further AI, uh, or at least be able to write uh, different kinds of programs. And there's a, a book I read a few years ago, I think it's called The Ultimate Algorithm or something like that. It, I mean, all about this idea of being able to write this sort of core AI algorithm that could then have the capacity to write more sophisticated AI algorithms around different use cases and purposes. And, and if you get to that point of, of AI actually being able to create software applications or AI applications, shouldn't whoever, shouldn't, shouldn't that be patentable somehow? I don't know. Yeah, patentable by the people though. Like I'm just trying to think in my mind if they did grant it to an AI program Master or something Army. like that, like what would happen then? Is it the AI program who is responsible for licensing it out or trying to enforce um, uh, their their own patent against people trying to infringe against it? Like reapplying for different uh, patents based off of it. Like I feel like you could get into a wormhole very quickly by having something like that. That has nothing to do with the fact that the technology is entirely capable of creating something itself, but just more the practical issues that occur with it after that. Yeah. And then on the, on the flip side, it's like, if, if we accept that, you know, entities can be people and have, you know, free speech rights and have other types of rights, then it's like, well, then shouldn't they be allowed to patent patent things too and shouldn't they have ip rights too so it it, it, it gets very confusing and, and you kind of wonder where it's where it's heading yeah yeah and definitely was just kind of like they still keep like the owners or corporate entities can own the patent they're the patent owners with the inventor would be listed as ai i remember speaking to a patent uh college professor a uh, law professor uh maybe like last year and he said kind of like when you get into this and just like ai and computers creating patents it's different from a human because a human has to take breaks. A human has to be inspired. They have to work. A computer, they can maybe crank out patents if you allow it. It's just kind of like it gets to that point where people still want to patent if you can so easily create patents and kind of gets into like a wormhole. But, you know, eventually, I guess, like, uh, uh, Congress people will have to um, make a decision about it. In entirely related news, there's a new Matrix trailer. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, no. It's, yeah, it, it becomes kind of a wormhole. I, I was actually thinking that point. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Victoria. I was like, if if the thing can be created that easily, like at what point is it actually all that unique? Um, and that's one of those things that you need to be patentable. But yeah. Sort of. Oh, sort of I... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was, you go first. I'm not wasn't uh, paying attention to that. Oh, okay. well, I was just going to say it, it reminds me of that. <clears throat> those rulings about what is or is not the unauthorized practice of law when when an AI program does something that a lawyer used to do. As, and I seem to recall that there's a ruling someplace that says, well, no, if a machine can do it, then it can't be a practice of law. So it can't be the unauthorized practice of law. So only a human can do certain things. <laughs> so maybe it's not entirely related, but it's as close as Joe's relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I think that, problem about anything related to AI to sort of touch on the tail end of what Victoria said, we'll just wait for the Congress to get around to it. We're, <laughs> we're going to be waiting a long time because we're still waiting for them to like amend that, you know, the what the 1983 Secure Communications Act, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting the uh, uh, name of that act right, but um, 
it, it takes them forever. You know, and the, the people in Congress definitely don't understand technology. I'm generalizing a few of them do, but most of them don't. And so I, that's always been the challenge with uh, technology and AI in particular, I would suggest um, biometrics and facial recognition and AI. And it's the concern that everybody talks about when they think AI is going to gain sentience that the regulations can't keep up because um, Moore's law was broken a long time ago and everything's moving so fast and legislation and Congress moves so slow. Well, so they if, decided that you can't regulate it. If though you create an AI that can create regulations, <laughs> what happens then? Is he then it can keep up? So are we going to have? Why I hedge Demi my bets? <laughs> are we going to have a Republican AI and a Democrat AI? Right? I just feel like this it, is why I welcome robots. Like um, it's like a Bob alluded to at the beginning. Every single day on Twitter, every weekday, I welcome a new robot because they're going to take like, over, and you got to be on the good side. It's like the it's like the flash they're crash that we had. Naked. It's like that flash crash we had, except it would be regulations where like every new thing is met by an immediate regulation until everything collapses. I'll throw it IBM in the primary in 2028. I don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm banking on, as, does anyone watch Star Trek out there? You know, the Borg queen was like actually human. That was like the bee in the middle of all the machines. That's what I'm going to be. You guys don't realize it, but I'm going to hold all the power of the world in my hand one day because I've been regularly welcoming them. They know I'm there. You know, on the other side. So, you just wait. Well, I hope. So now, so so here. now, actually, actually, I guess that raises an, another question: is is Nikki real? <laughs> <laughs> or is it, is, it, is it a is it a, an avatar of artificial intelligence? Or <laughs> People have been saying to me forever: Are you game. for real? Having <laughs> kind of a different tone than what you're saying, but you know. <laughs> <clears throat> Nikki's also the believer that we're all part of a computer simulation. So it's either robots taking over the world or we are part of a computer simulation. Uh, I kind of prefer the latter, I think. I don't know. Um, all right. Well, let's. Uh, well, why don't we keep with uh, that? Was something that was in the news. And Steve, you got something right out of the news like today. So maybe we can yeah, talk about that. Yeah, that's a big story today. Uh, the Northern District California judge ruled in the uh, Apple Epic uh, antitrust unfair competition lawsuit that <clears throat> got a lot of notoriety a while back. Epic, of course, is the is the maker of Fortnite and uh, the game Fortnite. And so, what happens when you go to the to the App Store, the Apple App Store, and you buy a um, an app? Uh, Apple gets a 30%, gets 30% of it, 30% uh, of the payment, if you will. And they don't give, or they historically haven't given any option to, to go someplace else or to, to uh, for the developer to say, you know, if you go to my website, you can, you can save the 30%. And so Epic came along and said, well, that's, that's a, a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act because Apple is a monopoly. And it's also a violation of the California state statute. Uh, it's called the Unfair Competition Law, UCL. And it basically precludes unfair competition, which it defines as an unlawful practice, an unfair practice, a misleading practice, a deceptive practice. It's, it's, it's I've, I've litigated several cases uh, in California under the UCL. And it's really a kind of a, 
a mushy statute, if you will, because basically what you do is you find cases all over the all over the place, and they don't necessarily make sense with one another. Like, what's unfair? You know, what does that mean? Um, so the big news is on the on the bigger claim, the uh, the Sherman Act uh, Antitrust Act, Apple won. The judge said it's they're not a monopoly. There are other options out there. Competition's not bad. But they lost on the UCL claim because what what Apple did is they basically didn't tell the consumer that there are other options for payment that you can go outside uh, the App Store and pay and uh, and save the 30 percent commission. And, and just as an aside, if you ever have gone to the to the Amazon app uh, in the App Store and tried to get a, a ebook, a Kindle book, you can't do it. Uh, and the reason for that is Amazon just didn't, Jeff Bezos really didn't like giving Steve Jobs 30%. So said, so I'm not going to do it. So you have to go to the actual uh, Amazon website. So how big of a deal is this? You know, I don't, I don't know. Apple had already agreed in another class action suit to, um, to let developers use information that they, they get when you sign up for an app to, to contact uh, customers and says, tell them here's another option. Uh, yeah, I really wonder, I don't know. I mean, you buy an app that's worth, uh, that, that costs $1.99, which a lot of them do. Uh, are you gonna wanna make two or three clicks to save what, 60 cents to, so it's $2.59 uh, on the app store versus a dollar ninety nine. If you click three times, to I don't know. I, I'm not, not not real sure. But but as I was I was telling Bob before we started, I mean thirty percent of a dollar ninety nine is one thing. Thirty percent of umpteen gazillion dollars, which is what <laughs> Apple makes off the app store, is entirely another thing. So uh, yeah. obviously it's going to be appealed, and there's going to be a lot of a lot of talk and. and consternation and arguments about it but at least to, to me the big headline from it is is apple one on the antitrust claim which i think is a pretty big deal yeah it's a super interesting decision too if you want some light weekend reading i definitely um would say go and take a look at the decision in this case i think it was a video games journalist jason trier that i really like used to be for kotaku who basically said yeah, this decision is for everybody who hates both companies because both kind of lost here. Um, Epic pretty much did lose on every single thing that they were trying to assert against Apple, particularly as you were saying, Steve, that antitrust claim. But the one where Apple lost that 30%, I think I've seen figures that just by virtue of Apple's app store being so huge and so many people having iPhones, it could be in the billions that they lose yeah because of that and that is a very big loss so i mean epic is going to have to pay damages for what they for bringing this case and that's in the millions but i think ultimately just in terms of raw numbers it could be a worse loss for apple yeah you know and it's and it's, and it's interesting because the ucl uh, is not a damage related statute it's an injunctive related kind of statute now you can get restitution you know, under it, which is, a, again, a kind of a bizarre sort of concept. But the real power of it is uh, 
it allows the court to enjoin Apple from continuing the practice. And it, it, the winner gets their attorney's fees paid. So another interesting question is going to be how much of the Epic attorney's fees you know, were spent on the UCL claim and how much on the, I mean, it's, it's kind of a litigator's, uh, I won't use the word nightmare. That's the wrong word. <laughs> Bonanza might Gold be mine. word. <laughs> I never knew why why I was not able to buy Kindle books out of my app. I learned something new today. That's it. And, and Netflix is the same way. You can't you can't get Netflix. You can't make pay Netflix through the app store. You have to go offline and do it. Yeah. <laughs> I um so as a random aside, the college debate topic for the year is strengthening antitrust laws. So it's super exciting how quickly moving and changing all of this is. It really makes it easy to keep on top of the research when the entire field of law is changing every day. Super great. Super excited about it. That's why they need coaches like you. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> for those who don't know, Joe is a debate coach in his spare time. I don't know when you have spare time, but hey, there's not time. a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, something we've talked a lot about on this program are the uh, uh, innovation efforts, the re-regulation efforts in, in, in Utah and Arizona. Uh, as everybody knows, Arizona pr pretty much got, got rid of the ban on lawyer uh, non-lawyer ownership of law practices last year. And Utah has a sandbox doing something similar. And uh, Victor, the uh, ABA came out with a uh, ethics opinion uh, this week that talks about uh, an aspect of that. Yeah, so um, the, uh, yeah, like, like you said, the ABA released a formal opinion, uh, I guess a couple of days ago, um, talking about, you know, what, what the, like outlining the steps for like whether a lawyer can passively invest in an alternative business structure based in one of these states um, and the answer was yes, like uh, lawyers can do it. Obviously there are uh, all kinds of restrictions and, and, and things that they have to keep, keep an eye on. I actually thought the opinion, I don't read too many of these ethical, ethical opinions. Maybe Nikki can, can, can weigh in on this, but I thought the opinion was pretty well reasoned and made a lot of sense. I mean, one, one thing that they said was that like, you know, lawyers have to be cognizant of potential conflicts. So if they invest in one of these ABA, ABS, um, um, or, you know, these structures or whatnot, then uh, that that could affect whether or not they can they can then represent someone whose interests could potentially conflict with that. And one of the analogies they made was that you know lawyers are free to invest in all kinds of things on this in their in their in their in their spare time. They can invest in like you know they can have ownership stakes in restaurants. They can invest in stocks. They can do all this and that. And if they have a client that comes in who has an interest adverse to one of those positions, then they have to they have to either you know um, decline the representation or they have to divest themselves of the, of the potential conflict or, you know, wall themselves off from their firm. So I actually thought that made a lot of sense and it made a lot of, uh, it, 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 it was, it was written in a way that, that I think a lot of lawyers could probably relate to and understand. So I, I actually, you know, um, thought, thought, thought that was done well. And then, you know, one of the other things that they talked about was just, uh, I think the choice of law, um, like, uh, like if, if, if there is a, um, if there is a if there is a dispute, you know, obviously um, the choice of law would be <laughs> a state where where these things are allowed, because otherwise that'd be a little unfair for someone who invests in one of these things, then have to have to then have to be governed by a state law that where they where they aren't allowed to invest in these things. So I thought that made a lot of sense too. So um, so yeah, so you know, kudos to whoever whoever wrote it. But uh, but yeah, I thought it was an interesting an interesting opinion that obviously you know. Um, you know, going forward, we'll see we'll see just how widespread 
uh, these structures are and just, you know, whether or not lawyers do decide to invest in them or whether they decide to just kind of, you know, um, edge on the side of caution for the time being. But I thought, yeah, it, it, it was a well-written opinion and it shed a lot of light on, on, on a tough subject that, that, yeah, has been, that is probably of a lot of interest to, to lawyers. Yeah. And Nikki, what do you think? Did you get a chance to read it? I know you write a lot about ethics. That opinion I just skimmed on your blog, Bob, and read the headline. So unfortunately, yeah. I've yeah. Got, <clears throat> I have not read that one in full. All right. And I haven't I, written I, about I, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Victor. I thought it was, and it, I thought it was a well, a, a well-reasoned opinion. And I mean, I saw a little bit of criticism of it on Twitter. Uh, and I mean, I'm usually not shy about criticizing ABA ethics opinions on on, uh, inter, on technology-related issues when when I think they deserve it. But I thought this one was, I, I thought it basically was right. <laughs> uh, and I mean, you know, basically it, it said, as, as you said, Victor, you, you can do it. I, you know, it, if I'm a lawyer here in Massachusetts, where 5.4 still exists, but I want to invest in uh, one of those alternative business structures, I can do that. And really, the only real caveat is to just be wary of conflicts of interest uh, with with clients you may have or with clients you may take on going forward. Uh, if if somehow the entity that you're investing in in Arizona or whatever you know, somehow has dealings with somebody who might be your client as well, or somehow could implicate your client, um, then obviously you have to, you have to consider the conflict of interest issues. But uh, yeah, that was I mean, it, it strikes me as kind of humorous that, that we're all complimenting the ABA uh, for such a nice opinion when like, isn't, shouldn't it like be obvious? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you can invest in, in another business as long as it's not a conflict. <laughs> um, well, I think the problem is that if you're, um, I think what, what makes it a little muddier is just the idea that if you're in a state where 5.4 still exists uh, and you're, you're investing under the fact that 5.4 has been eliminated in Arizona, it really kind of comes down in a sense to that choice of law issue that Victor was talking about. I mean, whose whose rules of professional conduct apply to you and how do they apply to you? So I think it gets a little muddy. I mean, it's not, yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it should just be obvious, but I, I think it's not entirely clear. And uh, oh, this is, so, so if I invest in a, in a cannabis company in California where it's legal, but I'm in Kentucky where it's illegal, then I should have a concern that Oh, never mind. <laughs> it gets, it gets, you're right. It's, well, it's, it's not a law firm. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a law firm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a fact that it's a, a legal services uh, entity that does make it a little muddier as well, yeah. as opposed to yeah. investing in a restaurant or something, but uh, or a cannabis that's, company. That's, if you're going to invest in a cannabis company, come to Massachusetts. It's legal here and we've got plenty. No, of, uh, although um, a, can, a cannabis dispensing law firm might not be a bad idea. I mean, you know. <laughs> a mobile cannabis dispensing law firm. One of those like, Little, little, uh, a little van that parks on a street corner and deals marijuana and legal advice. Uh, all right. Um, well, Nikki, since you hadn't read, since I caught you off guard on that one, what, what, what do you want to talk about this week? <laughs> also, in keeping with the theme earlier of um, uh, technology moving so quickly and people having a hard time keeping up. What I wanted to talk about was um, an article that was on Mashable, and it was about the uh, 
the SpaceX Blue Orig Origins lawsuit against SpaceX. And let me put this here into the um, into the chat so that people can see the article. But essentially what happened was that PDF issues caused a delay in the lawsuit, which I thought was really funny. Um, basically, it was really funny for any number of reasons. I mean, first, the problem was that the court's um, site couldn't, wouldn't allow um, the upload of such large files. And so the, in terms of, um, it wasn't the website, the, it was the Department of Justice. And they wouldn't, um, they, the Court of Federal Claims online system only allowed for files of up to 50 megabytes in size. So what I, to be uploaded, and what was so interesting to me was, I mean, anyone who's worked on just a basic civil litigation case knows how large files can be, let alone a case like that, you know, that is so document intensive. And the idea that the site can't handle large PDF files, and then, and my favorite part of it is, so they're now going to send it to them via a case of DVDs. I mean, come on, like, how is this like happening in 2021? And the whole thing got held up because the files were too big and they're sending DVDs. I mean, how are they even gonna open the DVDs? I mean, they're probably gonna have to go buy old, you know, technology somewhere to open these things up. So yeah. I, I just was, it's amazing to me that, you know, text moving so quickly, including the sizes of files and um, the ability to upload large amounts of files into the cloud or to share them online. And the fact that, the software that's being used in a lot of places or the systems that are in place just can't handle it. And so yeah. I just thought it was super interesting and ironic. Yeah, the court may have to swap out its floppy disk drive for a DVD drive. Right, and it's just, it's just amazing to me that, you know, that these, they're in the legal space, these just simple tech issues keep uh, arising as problems over and over again, whether it's lawyers, screwing things up on Zoom or not knowing how to use tech or posting stupid things online or all these diff different tech issues that are just related to litigation that come up. And they're just still not getting solved even though we're all working remotely and we need them to be solved at this point. I think she's trying to set up uh, a segue to Zach's story, but- uh... <laughs> oh, I, I, My one comment on this one though is I'm just wondering, particularly like you saw under the pandemic, it was the impetus for a lot of judges, a lot of court systems to say, okay, we have to learn Zoom. Like we have no other choice here. I wonder if we are going to see something similar for documents and document submittal, whether there's going to be some sort of exciting factor or a major case that hinges on something like this. I mean, that's literally what's happening here, but to the point where there's enough of a public outcry that court systems say, oh, okay, this is worthwhile for us to actually budget out now. Um, I don't know what that would be. I'm trying to rack my brain, but it's kind of an interesting thought exercise. Well, I, you know, I mean, it, maybe just a, a deadline filing that you can't upload because it's, you know, it's, it's a minute before the deadline and the system won't take it. That, that's, I mean, I don't know if the court's gonna be bothered by that so much as certainly the, uh, the attorney is gonna be bothered by it. Uh, the reverse of that we've seen we've seen bad we've seen uh, you know cases where where law firms have gotten 
I was going to say they've gotten screwed. Maybe they screwed up by, you know, getting notices from courts around electronic filings that were mislabeled uh, and and therefore caused the law firm to think it was a particular kind of a, a, a document coming to them or or more importantly, not think it was a particular document coming to them. There's the, the famous Sidley Austin case a couple of years ago where the, the notice from the court of a final order in a matter that started the started the clock running for filing an appeal, the notice from the court was mislabeled as, as to what the document was. And so Sidley Austin, whoever received it at the firm, just didn't bother to read the PDF, I guess, which happened to be a, a final order, final judgment of some kind and set the clock running for, so they missed the time for filing an appeal. So I don't know if that really speaks to your point, Zach, but I mean, there's so many sort of air rooms, areas of, of possible error in, in the whole federal courts docketing and, and filing system right now that it definitely needs to be upgraded substantially at some point. I mean, Pacer's only what now, 30 years old or something, 25, 30 years old. So. Well, they can't update it because updating Pacer in any way would cost billions and billions of dollars, they keep right. telling us. Right. I, I, and there's, there are a few things that frustrate me more than the federal government pretending, the, the federal judiciary pretending that Pacer is this like cutting edge multi-billion dollar project as opposed to a bad access a database that they cobbled together years ago. Yeah, there's probably somebody in the audience today who could probably code a better pacer right now than, uh, than they've got. several people I think as I'm scanning over the attendees yeah right um yeah but that was sort of a segue to Zach's other story do you want to talk about your other story then sure your, other story, um, your story yeah as we're talking about ethics I, I mean it's not really so much of a story as much as a conversation that happened this week um so a judge out of a local court in texas roy ferguson kind of went on twitter and just kind of talked about hey you do realize that judges are reading everything you tweet right and we're kind of keeping that in the back of our mind when we're thinking about um, how attorneys should act in our courtroom and attorney ethics and what have you. And it just started a bit of a conversation where um, attorneys and judges were going back and forth a little bit about like not only what attorneys should be doing while on Twitter and how they should be conducting themselves, but also kind of on the opposite side, whether judges actually should be thinking about that or looking at that at all in the um, vein of being impartial as they're ruling on things. Uh, it's kind of an interesting conversation, particularly, I mean, judges and attorneys knowing about each other and conflicts of interest have been a thing forever, but social media just kind of adds a new element to it where a lot of people feel very empowered to speak their minds, sometimes on controversial subjects. Um, so it's just something I feel a lot of people probably should keep in their back of their minds, maybe a little bit more than they do. Um, and it probably will be a topic of conversation moving forward here because I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of a, Steve, I don't know if you've ever had, had that. I mean, you, I don't know if you, you don't go to court much anymore, I guess, or I don't know if you practice at all anymore, but I, I don't, I don't go into court, but I, I am a, a lobbyist uh, and I, I go before the legislature and I have had occasion where I'll, I'll go in, I, this literally happened to me where I was going to testify before a panel of, of, of legislators in our state 
and one of them stopped to say, oh, I love your blog post about something or whatever. And I, like, I felt like it was my worlds colliding. It, like I never really occurred to me that anybody in the state legislature would be reading my blog or even knew who I was other than in my, with my lawyer hat on as opposed to my, my tech writer hat. And I, it, was, it was a little disconcerting <laughs> to have that happen. I mean, it wasn't anything bad and it was a totally innocuous exchange, but, but it kind of you know, it's it's a it's a good point, and I've had I've given talks and presentations on it because um, you know a, a lawyer takes a political position, particularly if you're a litigator, you take a political position in social media. There's so many people that can see it, including judges, potential jurors, adversaries, and it could impact your credibility, rightfully or wrongfully. I mean, whether you're on a good side or bad side of an issue, particularly these days when political issues are so polarized. I mean, you know, if I take a position on a political issue and people vehemently disagree with me and one of them pops up on a jury, that's probably not going to be good for my clients. So, but, you know, people want to talk. They want to comment. They don't want to be shackled. And so it's kind of a, bit of a fine line. I, I mean, I, my view is if, if you're going to be in, in court and practicing in front of juries and judges, you've got to be very cautious about what you say on social media about contentious kinds of issues. But that's just my philosophy. <laughs> I always tell lawyers um, when I write about the ethical issues as they come down, they're on the side of caution and let it be somebody else's. I always it takes me back to when I took um, New York civil procedure in law school and Professor Siegel, who's since died, but he was the one that um, wrote the commentary for the uh, McKinney's, um, which is the statutes. Um, and he was you know, really well known. He always taught this New York civil procedure class. And it was so interesting, even though the topic was so dry, because he was such a good professor. And a lot of the things he said have always stuck with me ever since. And one thing he always said was, let it be SEC, somebody else's case. Let somebody else, you know, err on the side of caution. Let somebody else be the cutting edge because if it's your case and you're the one uh, and it doesn't go down, you know, and you're doing something that's sort of questionable or the law's not clear and it gets litigated and then you're on the losing side, you know, your client's case has just been, you know, just has just disappeared and you have not done a good job. So always err on the side of caution. And I always tell lawyers to do that in social media. Let it be somebody else who the ethics committee looks at it and says, oh, you probably shouldn't have done that. You know, don't do it if you think it's questionable. Aaron is out of caution. Don't say things that are going to come back and bite you in the butt. Don't. And the internet's forever. You know, just because you delete it, there's a thing called screenshots and stuff can be, you know, duplicated and shared and saved online and it doesn't disappear. So just err on the side of caution and be careful. And don't let it be somebody else who loses their license, not you. <laughs> well, you also get into issues and this, I kind of got into this a little bit when I first started blogging and was still practicing, you know, taking a, a position on a case, you know, or and thinking that you are aligned with most of your clients and then discovering that your position doesn't align with some of your clients, which is bad enough. But the even worse part is to be in, in and this did not happen to me, how I hasten to add, but to be in a court arguing a position on behalf of a client and your adversary standing up and saying, you know, that's really interesting, Mr. Embry, you, you actually wrote an article and published on LinkedIn with exactly the contrary position. So I, I mean, you know, you think, okay, we're all big, big boys and girls here. The judge is going to say, yeah, 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 well, okay, big deal. But, but I don't, you know, 
that's a pretty pretty uncomfortable position, especially yeah. if you're quiet sitting in the courtroom with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but so Zach, your 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 debate was kind of more was kind of went to the question of whether judges should be looking at that stuff or thinking about that stuff themselves. Yeah, I, mean, um, I don't know how you avoid it, but yeah, and I mean that's part of the thing is you like to think of judges as kind of on this ivory tower kind of not really looking at anything but the case that's in front of them but judges are human too and i think sometimes it's a little bit tough to until avoid the that. ai overlords take over yeah until there are ai judges that make sure that we are doing the right thing but yeah um it, that's it, it, Roy Ferguson in particular is a judge that I know that my colleagues at the Texas Lawyer have quoted a few times and is very outspoken, but I think it was also kind of interesting seeing a little bit of the blowback there, like, well, why are you paying attention to this? Should you be paying attention to this? Um, kind of turning that on its ear. And it, it could be a point of contention, I think, like, it, not in every case, certainly, but I could see it popping up. Yeah. I um, yeah, good. I write a lot about judicial ethics opinions as well and what judges are supposed to do and not supposed to do. And um, I have a little bit of difficulty with this uh, when people make, I'm not arguing with you in general, but when you have this online world and the offline world um, and this idea that because the online world amplifies people's statements, amplifies people's behavior, um, makes it more accessible, that somehow judges shouldn't be looking at that, but then they're at a party with somebody. I always like to analogize things to the offline. So they're at a party with someone and a lawyer's over in the corner shooting their mouth off about some controversial subject, which I know very few lawyers do that because we like to keep our opinions to ourselves, but sometimes lawyers will do that. Um, and I'm kidding, lawyers do not like to keep their opinions to themselves. But, you know, I, I always feel like that is really analogous to this online, um, behavior. You know, judges, their job, they can't be isolated and they can't live in bubbles. And sometimes we act like they're supposed to once they get elected or once they become appointed. Suddenly like exist in this ivory tower and never interact with anybody. So that way it won't influence their decision-making abilities. But we know they're people, they have families, they have friends, they go and they socialize and they socialize with lawyers that appear in front of them sometimes. And their job is supposed to be to um, be able to be impartial and fair when they're making rulings. And even if they think this lawyer is a jerk, they're supposed to listen to his or her arguments and make their decision that way. And so I would suggest that probably it's inappropriate for them to be, um, if they know a lawyer is in front of them, to be constantly paying attention to what they're saying online. Although in some ways, maybe they should because they want to see if they're talking about the case. Um, but I would suggest that their jobs to be fair and impartial and that's part of what they're supposed to do and that they should be allowed to um, track and see what other lawyers are doing online and not live in an online bubble in, in that way. And so I think lawyers are people too, like just like you said, and I sort of go in a different direction with that. But Well, yeah, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about it as you were talking, it, a lot of times when you appear in front of a judge, particularly if you're, you know, not real familiar with the judge, your credibility is really online. I mean, and, you know, when, when I was practicing locally, you know, I knew all the judges. I tried to be very forthright and honest with them with my arguments. And so when I said something, they would at least pay attention and think if he says it's this way, there's a, a good argument that it is this way. What you get into is 
you know, you take some of the some of the really contentious issues, and the one that popped in my head as you were talking, Nikki, is this whole controversy about vaccines, right? And so, you know, I'm a judge, and I've had both vaccines. I strongly believe in them. And but then a a lawyer comes in that I know has been spouting off that vaccines are lunacy, that you're going to turn magnetic, and it's hard for me as a judge to say. How credible is he or she in front of me if they believe that, you know what, um, can I believe them? And so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and you're right, Nikki. I mean, if I were the judge, I should say, all right, I'm going to I'm going to give whatever argument he or she is making the same credibility as I'd give the other person. But then subconsciously, I don't know if I could do it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, well, uh, let's move on to Joe's story, who goes from from Beyonce last week to eDiscovery this week. I mean, natural transition uh, <laughs> for my thinking. Uh, yeah, no. So I had an interesting story that I, um, it, the story itself actually isn't what I wanted to talk about, but something the story raised. Uh, when we were <clears throat> out at the Global Legal Tech Affairs penthouse atop the Mandalay Bay, uh, reporting on things at uh, Ilticon, uh, at our Alticon, as we called it. Uh, one of the interviews we had uh, was with ActiveNav, and we in an interesting concept that they raised was, you know, that a lot, you know, while obviously an e-discovery player, they've shifted a lot of their, they pivoted uh, not, to some extent to utilizing their platform for just general governance and data mapping, uh, because which is kind of a logical jump, right? Like your like the, when you think about e-discovery platforms, you think, oh yeah, those could be used for that kind of upstream uh, of the data cycle. And it got me thinking whether or not that is kind of the future of where this area is going, because I think e-discovery, while it's not like it's not dynamic and things aren't still progressing, the idea of where the new market share is might be starting to dry up as everyone's kind of doing it. And is the future of this going to be the ability of vendors to see new use cases for the technology they've already developed, uh, data governance or perhaps something else? Is there some other place where they can use the technology they've already worked out? And is that kind of the future of what's happening there? And the folks that don't try to branch out in use cases, maybe that's the that's the place where they're in trouble, or that's the place where they're going to get su sucked up by somebody else who does have that kind of worldview. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I think uh, in e-discovery, that, that's been kind of slowly happening for a number of years. Uh, I mean, you've seen a lot of the uh, products, especially some of the, well, maybe across the range, but I was going to say some of the more mid middle tier e-discovery products that aren't like the super big dominant ones, like maybe relativity or something where they've been, uh, uh, one area that a lot of them expanded to is uh, selling, marketing themselves to governments for handling public records requests. Uh, and that, that's been a big area for a number of them. And then uh, uh, another area is in compliant, doing compliance investigations, internal corporate uh, enterprise compliance investigations, where the software can be really great for, you know, going through reams of, of, of emails and, and other electronic documents looking for evidence of 
you know, some kind of a, a, a unlawful bribery or, or uh, that, that sort of thing uh, in a compliance matter. So, but, you know, even beyond e-discovery, like you say, it's, um, uh, I, you know, just the, the idea of taking a core technology and being able to expand it either in other use cases within legal or even into other verticals outside legal uh, is really where for some of these companies, the big future is, I think. Yeah, and for me, it does kind of come back to the money too, which I think is part of what's really changing here is particularly for a lot of the mid-sized companies, the ones that aren't necessarily relativity that are looking for increased funding to try and make a dent in this space. A lot of venture capital, they look at e-discovery and say, ah, that's small potatoes. What we really want is an enterprise technology here. Right. Like I'm actually thinking of a story that we just posted before this started, uh, Hanzo, which is a e-discovery company. They focus on a lot of dynamic data like Slack. They got 10.5 million um, yesterday, I believe yesterday, it is. Yeah. And yeah, we talked to them and the CEO basically says, I'm going to read the quote here. We see that the market now requires to be able to deal with more of these sources and also to be able to do more things once you have them. And more things can be related to discovery, but also to compliance, to data privacy. And that's one thing that um, the investor really liked about them. So I think as more money begins to flow in, I think it's going to be a necessity for these companies to really keep up with what their investors are demanding of them to be able to spread out beyond just discovery into these other areas to keep the money rolling in as much as anything else. Yeah. yeah I remember way back when, when, when I worked for uh, uh, like well, technology news, I, I think I spoke to, I think it was Recommind. I, I don't know. I don't know what they are now or who they're on by. Uh, this is back when they were still independent, I guess. But like they were talking, this was this was right. This was right, like during right when Obamacare was starting up, and so they were like, you know, their big thing was they were going to try to start um, coming through like medical records and trying to find, you know, use their technology to to uh, market themselves as a way that you could just like rapidly go through records and search for things and whatnot. Obviously, there were, you know, um, you know, the uh, privacy issues and whatnot that they had to be cognizant of and things like that, but. I feel like any anything where you know you have like a like a like a ton of volume and you need a way to like to, and you need a way to like you know go through it really quickly to, to search for things and to you know have like a method for 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 finding data or or or, or, or deleting things you know would, would would obviously you know be a be a natural move for some of these for some of these uh, vendors and yeah I, I guess I guess you know it, you know it, it remains to be seen like as to where they you know where they end up but I mean. I would think that there, that there were a lot of places where they could easily apply this technology as a matter of whether or not they have the have the wherewithal to do it. I, I did yeah, a story I'm, last I'm year in... for uh, a law tech for uh, above the law on uh, Maura Grossman uh, her, developed the technology assisted review technology uh, using it to go through COVID literature, right? uh, medical literature to help find uh, you know, to help sort of expedite uh, research to, to find a, a develop a vaccine for COVID. And I think Relativity also had a project product along those lines too that uh, talked about. So that's another example of that. Yeah, and as a, as a former litigator, I'm, <clears throat> I'm really sort of impressed with how they are taking the, the e-discovery, which is which to me sort of a misnomer. I mean, that's like saying there's e-discovery and there's discovery, but like right. it's all discovery these days, but, but they're taking these tools that are, and they're allowing the, the, the lawyers to use them to develop their story, to develop the theory of the case, to, to put together, you know, all sorts of different 
uh, uh, tools to help them litigate the case, not just search for documents. Um, so I said, you know, it's pretty, pretty interesting development. Several of them have come out with th things that do just that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all right, well, uh, I guess I can talk about my story. Um, the only thing, the, the one story I, well, I wrote a number of stories this week, but uh, uh, the one I wanted to talk about was, was just Clio's acquisition. Uh, Clio this week announced that it ac acquired Laya, a document automation and assembly platform. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I just think it's interesting. Um, I, I continue to be fascinated by the whole way in which the whole practice management world has uh, evolved uh, over the last decade and uh, starting really from, uh, you know, Clio, Clio's early days uh, launched just over a decade ago. Um, uh, and supposedly I was, I was the first one to write a blog post about, about Clio way back when, uh, and followed them for years, followed my case for years, followed all these companies. Um, and, uh, you know, Clio at this point, um, this is only its third acquisition, uh, surprisingly, because, because it's suddenly, it's feeling like such a big, big company and it's got so much money. Uh, but I think this, uh, is the beginning of, of a lot more. I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we heard of more even before their conference uh, next month. Uh, is that just next month? I think it is, right? Clio Cloud Conference. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I just think it's it's it, as significant as the acquisition is more significant as kind of the, the trend it represents of these companies getting bigger and bigger. Uh, my case has been making acquisitions. Other companies are all making acquisitions and coming together. Uh, and there's a real lot, a whole trend of consolidation uh, and growth going on with these these platforms that for a long time were all kind of smallish companies. Yeah, the fact that it was only its third ever is really what stood out to me in the story. That's interesting that you think more is coming though, because um, I don't I don't I mean, have any inside information. Well, I'm just uh, yeah. No, I mean just looking at the numbers. Hear that, though. SEC? He doesn't have any inside information. <laughs> No, just uh, looking at the numbers, though, it was one for a long time, and then they made one in June or July, one now. So it seems like they are starting to tick up a little bit after years of only organic growth. Um, it, they were kind of, to your point, kind of alone in that because so many of these companies that previously were mid-market and have scaled up have done it inorganically through M&A, that Clio was a little bit on an island like that. But yeah, now that they have the capital, it wouldn't surprise me to see that change. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, in my case was not doing any acquisitions for the longest time or anything like that. I mean, my case was just just develop all developing everything in house, uh, and uh, kind of taking a different turn this year um, as well. So, anyway, it's interesting. Um, and uh, they did say we should expect to see more big news before the conference. So we'll see what that is. Their definition of big news might not be our definition of big news. All right, anything else? Slings, arrows. Uh, <laughs> Victor had to jump. Uh, I just got asked the weirdest question, which has no legal tech uh, line at all, but fascinating one. Somebody I know who is not a lawyer just asked me over text, 
does the new vaccine mandate apply to NFL teams? And I was like, <laughs> they would be, they would be over a hundred employees. I assume, I, I guess it's vaccine or testing. And most of them have testing protocols, but yeah. so they're probably in compliance, but um, just out there for anybody who might have Cole Beasley or something, you might want to bench him, I guess, is that your take. <laughs> well, didn't, well, didn't, didn't, didn't like an assistant man, assistant coach or something already have to step already have to resign because, because he didn't want to comply with the, with the, oh, with, the, yeah. with the, with the, with the, with the mandate or something. I think, mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I think, I think the league is free to impose their own, their own policies. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not an employment expert law lawyer or sports lawyer, but I assume they're allowed to, um, they're allowed to uh, uh, impose their own, their own policies and, 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 and players, coaches are free to, to, to follow them or, 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 yeah. or, or sit out. So. Yeah. I'm just saying, I think yeah. that the, the new mandate is now their floor, like anything yeah. they can do over that. Yeah. But I think that does apply to them. Be very interesting. What's going to happen to some of these players, nothing tech related there, but I, I thought it was a fascinating legal question that I had not thought of at all until I saw it. That'll be next year's debate question. Yeah, I know, right? All right. Well, then, if that's it, uh, oh, Steve is back. Um, <laughs> just, just in time. <laughs> just, in just in time. Last but not least, to say goodbye. Uh, thanks to everybody for watching and listening, and uh, we will be back next week and uh, find out what happens. And see you all then. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Have a good weekend.